0: glad you're here, glad you made the effort to be here. Uh, Next week when you come, try to spread out a little more. I don't want you to be too clumped up (laughs) when you sit here. Glad you're here, glad you made the effort. We had a great meal, had a great time uh, fellowshipping before our class. Wanted to let you know uh, on our sermon series on Sunday, timely answers to tough questions. We've got nine weeks that we're looking at questions I believe a whole lot of folks have questions about. Uh, This week we're going to talk about what happens when you die. What happens in the instant? What happens following that? Does the Bible tell us what happens when we die? What about uh, special circumstances? What about suicide? Other issues like that as well. I think very valuable uh, information and to know what does God say? What does God's word say about that subject? So I want to encourage you to plan to be here, uh, make the effort to be here, and then invite folks to join you uh, as we get ready for Sunday. Let me start us off with a word of prayer tonight. Dear Father, we come, we're thankful for tonight, we're thankful for the opportunity we have, and uh, we're thankful for this hour. We, we pray that we're uh, diligent to study your word, to, to consider what you have said, and I pray that we are built up tonight, that we are encouraged tonight, that we are shaped in the study of your word. I pray uh, for our classes from the smallest, youngest kids class uh, to our youth class that's meeting, to our, our adults that are meeting as well, I, I pray that... Again, that it is your foundation of truth that is built upon, that is stacked upon, and I pray that we are, we are truly shaped as your people tonight. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it's living and active and speaks today. Again, we pray for our church. We, we, we are thankful for what you've done, what you're doing in it, through it, and we're thankful for uh, the ability that we have to reach out, to preach, to speak, to stand, and to uphold the name of, of Christ, And then we just come and ask, Lord, that you'd meet with us tonight. We trust this to you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, tonight we're moving to the 37th lesson in our Bible study. Tonight we're looking at God's ambassador, Isaiah. Now we've moved to a section where we're looking at prophets, Old Testament prophets. Now remember, a prophet is a person commissioned by God, sent by God, there really is no set qualification, but they're sent by God to declare his word, to declare his message. Well, as part of that, we are looking at some individual prophets from the Old Testament. Well, tonight we come to the prophet Isaiah, God's ambassador, Isaiah. Now, our verses tonight, if you want to read them, it's the entire 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah. So it's a big set of verses, a big volume of words That's where our our account will come from tonight, the entire book of Isaiah. Now, as we've been doing, we will not look at that, of course, all tonight, but we'll pull certain sections out. But the whole study comes from the book of Isaiah. If you have your worksheet tonight, you notice the key point tonight of all the things that we're gonna look at, the key point is that God's plan for dealing with sinners has never changed. He warns of judgment, while offering hope in his grace. Now listen to all the words of that. They're very important. God's plan for dealing with sinners has never changed. He warns of judgment while offering hope in his grace. Now think about that as we read the book of Isaiah, written 700 years approximately before the birth of Christ. And so all the way back to Christ and then 700 years before Christ, we see that God did not have to update his plan, or God did not have to change his plan, but his plan was always to send a Savior for those that are stuck and lost in their sin. Sometimes I think we think, well, God had to reshift, or he had to make a second plan. We messed up the first plan. Well, all the way 700 years before Christ, the answer was always Christ. The remedy was always going to be Christ, and it was always heading for Christ. And so, It's not an update. It's not a change of plans. All the way back to Isaiah, we see God's plan was always to send a Savior, to send the Christ, uh, our Savior Jesus. And so he warns of judgment. He also tells of hope. And all of that is in the promise of our Savior Jesus Christ. All right, I'll start off by looking at the prophet Isaiah himself. Just a quick uh, run through. What do we know about Isaiah? Uh, we really don't know a whole lot about his specific information. We know he was a prophet uh, to the southern kingdom of Judah under the reign of four kings. And so during his time of prophesying, it's to the southern kingdom. The kingdom is now split, uh, and, he, and he serves during the reign of four different kings. During this time, during this, this time that he's prophesying, the nation was involved in wicked sin and vile sin uh, including all sorts of false worship. and So we know when he serves, we know the, the time period, we know it is a wicked time in their nation, and we know that, that false worship has, has risen up in the people. Uh, most likely he was a priest, and that's why we find him where we find him. Most likely he was a priest. He was the son of Amos. He married, he had, four, had sons, Uh, His name translates, Yahweh is salvation. we also know if we read the New Testament, if we study the New Testament, he's widely quoted in the New Testament, and he's quoted much by Jesus himself. And so Jesus refers to the the prophecies, uh, the words that we have through Isaiah. All right, so that's, that's Isaiah himself. All right, here we have 66 books A whole lot of history going on. A whole lot of things happen in the course of these sixty-six books. Well, we thought the best way to look at it it was to lift out key themes from the book of Isaiah. And so, instead of spending two years going verse by verse, or 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 a year going chapter by chapter, uh, we're actually just going to lift out key themes from the book of Isaiah. I think this is the best way to break it down. So. Tonight we're looking at the book of Isaiah, we're looking at the work of the prophet Isaiah and we're going to pull out key themes out of his book uh, for us to look at tonight. All right, the first key theme that we're going to pull out of our study uh, is the theme of false worship, false worship. I'm going to start off, I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, Isaiah chapter 1. Verses two through four. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. For the Lord speaks, sons I've reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Sons I've reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. An ox knows who his owner is, a a, a donkey knows where his food is at, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Verse four, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from him. All right, starting off the book, right off the bat, we see God's people are found to have revolted against God. They have turned away from God. They have become exceedingly sinful. In fact, it has become the pattern of their existence. They are sinful. They are devious. They are wicked. They think of new ways to be wicked. They're they're consumed in sin. The, The verse says they're weighed down. Under this iniquity, under this sin. It actually becomes just the movement of the culture. It says their kids, their offspring, Uh, evil parents and evil practices produce evil kids. And so there's a corrupt, another another generation that's coming up after them. Uh, It's a very telling word in in chapter 1, verse 4. It's the word abandoned. I want you to think about that for just a second tonight. Abandoned. Abandoned, in the original language, in the Hebrew, it translates to leave behind or to depart from. Now, I want you to think about that meaning. Uh, to leave behind or to depart from. Now, here's what that means. These people actually knew God. They knew his blessing. They walked in his blessing. They had his word. They were led by his word. They knew his character. They knew he was trustworthy. They knew he was faithful. They knew he was good. They knew his character, and they left him. Now, that's crazy to me. When I I think about that, they actually know God, know who he is, know what he's done, know what his character is, and knowing him, knowing how great he is, they choose to turn away from him. The actual picture is the end of the verse. To abandon means to turn and go away from so here we have God's people, they know him, they've seen him, they see what he's done for them, they're blessed because of him, they have his word, and then they knowingly decide to turn and go away from him. Now, a couple things, when I read that and I think about that, I wonder, how does that make any sense? How does that make any sense? Now, if you didn't know God, it would be, it'd be understandable for you not to walk with God. How does this make any sense to actually know God and choose not to walk with him? How dumb is that? How illogical is that? I know what he's done for us. I know his great blessing and I'm going to choose not to follow him. All right, that's crazy, makes no sense. It's illogical. Here's the deal. Isn't that exactly our world today? Isn't that exactly our world today? I think about The crazy stuff of of this weekend, Uh, the awards show, I I see the things of our culture, I I see people, and here's the deal, we know who God is, we have his word, we know he's blessed us, we know if we'll follow his word, he'll walk with us, we know his character, and yet people say, you know what, I'm going to turn and do something else, not going to worry about that, and we're living in the exact same situation. Corrupt people are stewing in corruptness, and guess what we're producing? Another corrupt generation. Maybe a more corrupt generation. So the, the first key theme that we see uh, is false worship. They worship false gods. They've abandoned God, and that's one of the themes that we see all the way through the book of Isaiah. All right, another thing we see, another key theme, and I think it's an awesome theme, Uh, is we see the importance of the Word of God. We see the place of the Word of God. In Isaiah, we see God's Word is central in how He deals with His people, which means it holds a central place. God's Word is central in how He leads His people. It is central in how He blesses His people. Now, what, what, what I mean by that is this. When they receive his word, when they listen to his word, and when they follow his word, guess what happens? He blesses them. Good things happen. Things go their way. When they receive his word, when they, re- when they heed his word, they are promised deliverance and they find it. They are promised God's blessing and they find it. But here's the deal. When they reject God's word, when they set down God's word, when they ignore God's word, There is trouble and there is sin and God's judgment results. All right, I guess we're gonna keep saying this all the way through tonight. Isn't that the world today? Isn't that the world today? God's word says, here's the truth. God's word says, this is the best way to live. God's word says, there are only two genders. God's word says, sexual practice is to look like this in the context of a marriage. God's word says, this is how you handle your finances. God's word says, this is how you raise your kids. All of these things, and the problem is, we're living in a day when we say, I'm gonna sit down God's word. I'm gonna be saved, I wanna go to heaven, but I'm not gonna let it shape the rest of my life. We set down to God's word. Guess what happens? Trouble, sin, God's judgment. It is the exact same pattern. I, I see what he's saying, and I see how we, what we're doing, and I wonder, how are we so hard-headed? How do we not figure this out? If you'll live according to God's word, he'll bless you. It'll be smooth. Uh, he, if, you, if we set down his word, uh, we're going to have trouble and chaos and drama and all the things that stir up in our life. Why are we so hard-headed? In Isaiah, we see this. We see the dependability and the trustworthiness of God's word. Let me read some verses. I'm going to turn over. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And so we see here in the book of Isaiah over and over again, just like God is unchanging, his word is unchanging. So he is sure, his word is sure. His word is truth. It stays true. His word is like him, able to be trusted, uh, relevant for our day. Now, think about this. Everything else is falling apart. Everything else is coming undone. The example is you have a flower. Man, look at this flower. It's awesome and it's blooming. And I don't care how good of a green thumb you are, guess what? There's going to be a day when a frost comes, when a, when a drought comes, when a sandstorm comes. And, and the petals are going to fall off and it's going to wither away. What was once is not, beautiful is not that way any longer. Everything else is changing. We're getting older. Things are changing. Things are changing. You know what doesn't change? God's word. It stays. It remains. It holds fast. Now you may say, well, why is that important? Isaiah tells us God's word is central to how he deals with us, how we deal with him. Isaiah tells us his word is solid it does not change. Now, why is that important? Here's here's the thing. If his word is not solid, if it's it's not uh, changeless, unchanging, then you couldn't trust it. If he said one thing and then later came back and said something else, if, well, the, the times changed and so his word changed with it, you couldn't trust his word. But because his word stays and he stays, and they're consistent, we can trust his word. And so you know what? When God says this, I can take it to the bank. I can trust it. Second thing that that means is this. Why does it matter if his word is trustworthy and unchanging? Because it means it's still relevant. And we've talked about this several different times. How in the world can something from 2,700 years ago still be right today? How can something from 2,000 years ago still match up with how we are to live today. It's because it's still relevant. God's word still speaks. God's word is, is relevant for what you're dealing with, for what I'm dealing with. Uh, one, of the, one of the funny things that I've, I've watched over these years is I can finish a sermon, and I don't know what you're dealing with, and I don't know what y'all are dealing with, and I don't know what's going on with you, and we can walk out and someone will say, well, it's like God was speaking to me today. Or somebody actually has gotten mad and said, how do you know all that? I don't know all that. God's word is speaking to us. And it matches what you're dealing with, which is not what you're dealing with. And and God is speaking through his word. It is relevant today. You know why? Because his word doesn't change. It's trustworthy. It is solid. So Isaiah shows us the central place of the word of God. It's funny in all of the things we're teaching, Sunday night for sure, Sunday morning, we keep going back to go to the word of God. Don't come to me Don't come to a denomination. Don't go to anybody else. Go to the Word of God. The Word of God will show you, will teach you, will illuminate, and what we turn to is the Word of God. So the book of Isaiah, one of the major themes, the trustworthiness, the central place of the Word of God. All right, another theme that we see in the book of Isaiah, and you're going to see it as as you travel through it. Another theme is the indictment of sin the indictment of sin I want you to notice this and it doesn't change God calls sin sin God calls sin sin he does not overlook it he does not excuse it and he does not accept it he clearly calls it to people's attention now we think man that's hard Man, that's rough. I want to tell you one of the most gracious things that God does is say, that's sin. And if you continue in that, it's not going to end well for you. It is a gracious thing to say, that is sin. That is trouble. If you had a kid and they're running up on a cliff and they go over that cliff, it's a 2,000-foot drop and there's a bunch of rocks, you know, I don't want to yell at them. I don't want to upset them. They're running straight for that cliff. Yeah, but they're good little kids. I love them. No, it would be not kind to not tell them. a gracious thing to say, you know what? You keep running that speed and you go off that edge. You're in big trouble, Mr, God, in His graciousness, calls sin sin. I want you to think about this. Here's what the Bible teaches us. Deliverance can only come if there is repentance. God works when we repent. When we turn to Him and say, that's a sin, and I agree with you about that sin, and I'm sorry over that sin, and God empowered me to leave that sin. Deliverance, you know how we're saved? When we call our sin our sin and turn to Jesus as the remedy for our sin. Deliverance can only come if there is repentance. Repentance will only come if there is conviction. You won't just repent for one day. You think, well, I'm going to repent. That's, it seems like a good day. Repentance only comes from Conviction. And conviction is only possible if there is certain and plain indictment of sin. Over and over and over again, you read the book of Isaiah, you're going to see sin's called sin. He calls out his people and says, that's a sin. That's nonsense. That's rebellion against me. That is sin. In fact, one of the main purposes of Isaiah the prophet is to point out sin. Now, think about that. What a cruddy job. His job is to go to a people and say, God says that's a sin. God says that's a sin. That is is a rebellion against God. That is a sin. Yet, when there's conviction, there can be repentance. And when there's repentance, there can be deliverance. There can be salvation. I want you to think about that for a second. That is so counter to what our culture puts out today. We think, the indictment of sin is judgmental, unloving, intolerant. And so if you say, hey, that's, that's sin according to God's word, oh, that's unloving, that's judgmental, that's rude for you to say. Actually, the indictment of sin is a gracious thing, is a good thing. I want you just to think through the process. Would a person repent, and maybe just put your name in there, would you repent, turn from your sin is what that means, without the conviction of your sin? And, and, and I think in our, our day we try to make people comfortable in their sin. Well, we don't want to upset you. Well, we want you to come back next week. And so our job is to make you comfortable in your sin. That's not our job. Our job is to say sin is sin and hold up the remedy for sin, Jesus. So let me ask you this, and this is is a process I've worked through in my brain. So if you won't repent unless you're convicted of your sin, doesn't it make sense that you won't be saved unless you're convicted of your sin? Which means this, in a day when we're raising kids, in a day when we're living and saying, that's no big deal, that's no big deal, God doesn't care about that, well our culture's different, no big deal, we don't need Jesus. We don't need to be forgiven. We're not convicted of anything. And so my opinion is, if we're not talking about sin, if we're not talking about what God hates, uh, we don't have a need for Jesus. And so you see churches today, and there's, there's whole churches that say, we don't want to talk about sin. We're not going to talk about the punishment for sin. Well, guess what? There's no need for Jesus if we don't see the, the harshness of God's judgment of sin. We can't avoid the subject. That that was actually Sunday morning as well. We can't avoid the subject. We sin, all of us. When we do, we need a Savior. And if we don't talk about the one, we can't uphold the other. All right, third thing we see, fourth thing we see in in the book of Isaiah is a warning of judgment, a warning of judgment. God judges sin. To be fair, he must judge sin. To be good, he must judge sin. And so guess what God does? He judges sin. Folks say, well, I don't like that v- version of God. I don't like that picture of God. He has to judge sin. Because he is fair, he has to judge sin. Now, I gave this example Sunday morning. Uh, I'm going to give it to you again this evening. If there were a judge, all right, here's a judge. And that judge overlooks wrongdoing. And so here they are, and they're lying and cheating and stealing from the neighbor. And the judge says, not worried about it. If that judge overlooks wrongdoing, just lets it slide. Or if there's abuse, somebody's hurting the neighbor, robbing the neighbor, uh, putting grief on the neighbor. They're abusing the neighbor. And the judge sees it, not worried about it, just going to let it slide. Doesn't doesn't stand for the right thing. Or if there's some that are that are doing wrong things, and the judge says, Well, you're accountable, but you're not. You, you came to my barbecue last week, and I know your parents. I'm not worried about your sin, but your sin I'm upset about. If he upheld the standard for some but not for others, guess what? That God, that judge is not just. He's not good. We'd say he's sorry. He's evil. He's wicked. Well, it's the same way with God. He has to judge sin. That's why we have a day when there'll be no more sin and no more sorrow, no more sickness for the former things will have passed away. You know why? Because he will judge those things and they'll be cast into the lake of fire. We have to have a God that judges sin. That is good. That is loving. So we have a God that warns us of judgment. Now think about that all the way through the Bible. The grand scheme of things, here we go, here to here to here. God never sends a judgment that he doesn't warn of the judgment. Hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh, tell them this. Hey, Noah, 120 years, preach this. He always says, repent, turn, come back. If you don't, there's a judgment coming. That is gracious, that is good. What if he didn't give any warning? What if he didn't even tell you what sin was? He doesn't tell you there's a problem. He just comes in one day and says, I'm mad. Well, I don't know why. What do we do? Should have known. And he cast judgment on you. No, God says, here's what sin is. Here's why it's an offense to me. Here's what's going to happen if you participate in it. He always warns of a coming judgment. One of the main things that Isaiah does is say, you better repent, you better come back. Judgment's coming. In our day, I want to tell you this. We better repent. We better turn to Christ. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. One of the key themes is the warning of judgment. That is a good thing. That is a kind thing. That is a gracious thing. All right, so how do we fit in that? I think about that for just a second. What if we don't take a stand? What if we don't say, that's of Satan. What if we don't say that's a sin according to God? We're just like the judge that doesn't do anything about it. It is not gracious to not warn folks. There is a heaven and there is a hell and there is a way that seems right to the man, but in the end it ends in death. It is gracious to tell folks of judgment. One of the key themes of the book of Isaiah is a warning of judgment. All right, built into that, and it just makes sense, another theme of the book of Isaiah is a call to repent. God doesn't just crush people, and I think we need to be sure of that. He doesn't just go around crushing people. Oh, you're having too much fun. I gotta crush you. He doesn't crush people. He actually calls them to repent. So the reason he points out sin, the reason he warns of a judgment is that folks would repent and turn back to him. He's not trying to crush his people. He's trying to save his people. So there's a call to repent. That is a good thing. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. All right, listen to this. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. All right, let me tell you what those verses say. I'm going to read the rest in a second. Here's what those verses say. Don't try to do religious things thinking you're appeasing me or fooling me. So you come to the the religious celebrations, you come to the celebration of this new moon, this festival that's supposed to happen on this day, you bring all your big offerings, you make a big show, and yet you're covered up in sin. He says, stay home. That's basically what he says. Don't bring that up here. Tired of your sacrifices. If your heart doesn't follow. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. The call of Isaiah, see your sin, know your sin, turn to God, repent. The call is to repent, turn away from sin, turn to God. All right, the next part we see, next thing we see, in Isaiah, indictment of sin, in Isaiah, a call to repent, in Isaiah, the announcement of judgment. Here's something we also see, an offer of hope, an offer of hope. As we think about, now just think, if I I came in your living room and said, that's a terrible sin you're involved in, and God's not happy with your sin. And his judgment's coming on you because of your sin. And we're sitting there at your coffee table and you're looking at me. And so I'm just gonna tell you, this is a sin. God's not pleased with it. God's gonna judge it. You gotta repent. That would be a very heavy conversation. I think that would be a very weighty, weighty (laughs) ordeal. If you didn't ask me to leave, you'd be going, man, this is tough. We think that might be crushing But I want to tell you this. Here's here's the thing about the gospel. Here's the thing about the grace of our God. God never presents the one without presenting the remedy. And so he could come and just crush us. Sometimes I watch, man, some of the stuff of the last month. He ought to just start striking folks with lightning. He ought to let trees fall on people. I, 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 I don't know. I saw a deal the other day about a person that had a live uterus sewn into a man that will stay living in the man, thinking the man would be a female. And I think about a hospital, an operating room, the research doctors and the people that participate in that. Why did not God just drop a big heavy anvil on the whole thing? You know why? Because God's not that way. He's gracious. He tells us what sin is. He tells us judgment's coming, but he always does it with the upholding of hope. Repentance, turn to, turn to God and there's always hope. In dealing with sin, we always see God's gracious and compassionate character, which means this, God never leaves you without a hope. Your sin's terrible, my sin's terrible. God's never left us without a hope. Preaching the truth of God's word, God doesn't do it to crush us, he does it that we would see the hope. All right, that promise of hope is never clearer than in the foretelling of the Messiah. So here he comes and you read Isaiah and go, whew, what a tough book. Hammers me on every level, calls them sinners, tells them they need to repent. What a heavy book. But you know what's also in Isaiah? The telling of the coming of Christ. The telling of of a Savior that will forgive sin. He never upholds one without holding out the other. He never leaves us without a hope. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, great verses. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish, and in earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Nepali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. He says there's going to be good news come out of Galilee. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of a harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. "...for every boot of the, of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood, will be for burning fuel for the fire." Listen to this. "...for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end of the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom." to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah tells us Jesus is coming. Isaiah over and over says there is hope, there is a remedy, there is a Savior, there is hope coming in the person of Jesus. All right, you read Isaiah, it's going to talk about sin. It's going to call for repentance. It's going to foretell of judgment. But it's always going to have, with an tied to it, an offer of hope. Last thing is this. In Isaiah, something that's held up, and we see it in all of these aspects. Call to repent, we see it. Indictment of sin, we see it. The upholding of hope, we see it. And that is this, God's greatness. God's greatness is on full display in his activity with people. When we read the book of Isaiah, each of these aspects are upholding parts of his greatness. So he's kind to call out sin. He's kind to call us away from sin. He's kind to give us a savior for sin. All of these things that are going on across the book of Isaiah Are upholding the goodness of God, the greatness of God. God's greatness is upheld in this book. Isaiah chapter 40. verses nine all the way to the end of the chapter. All right, listen to this. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense Before him, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, and his arm will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in the balance, and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and is regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? And what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, and he seeks out for himself a skilled craftsman. "'to prepare an idol that will not totter. "'Do you not know? "'Have you not heard? "'Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? "'Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? "'It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, "'and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, "'who stretches out the heavens like a curtain "'and spreads them out in a tent to dwell in. "'He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, "'who makes the judges of the earth meaningless.' Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sowed, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high, and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth by their host by number, and calls them all by name, because of The greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of God? Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That's just part of one chapter. In that chapter, God is mighty. God is infinite in wisdom. God doesn't need anything from anybody. God holds the stars in the sky. He created all the stars. God sees the plight of man, the weary man. He upholds. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's like a shepherd. You could go on and on and on. How great is our God. The book of Isaiah calls us to repent, calls us to see sin, calls us to the hope we have in Jesus, and all the way through it, it upholds the greatness of God. All the way through Isaiah, we see the greatness of God. Praise the Lord for these themes that are true about our God, our gracious, mighty God. Glad you're here tonight. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Glad you're here. I'm going to ask if you'll stand, please. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come tonight and we praise you, we thank you, we worship you, Lord, we're thankful for your truth, we're thankful for your word, we're thankful for you. And as we read tonight, as we think about who you are, what you've done, as we think about the promise of a Savior hundreds of years before he is born, hundreds of years before he'll be crucified for our salvation, risen in victory, this has always been the plan. This is always who you are and who you've been. And so we come tonight and we praise you, we thank you, we worship you. Lord, I pray as we leave this room, as we leave this time, we would remember we have a mighty God. We have a God that's infinite in wisdom. We have a God that is gracious to us as sinners. We have a God that promises and delivers hope. And I pray as we're mindful of these things, that it shapes how we finish up this week, that it shapes how we work at our jobs, that it shapes how we deal with other folks, that it changes what we do in our homes, that our eyes will be fixed upon you. Lord, we tell you tonight, we're thankful for the opportunity for our kids to learn. I pray that tonight, 4-year-olds, 8-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 17-year-olds, Hear about the word of God that's trustworthy and relevant in our day that will lead them to good things. I pray that their foundations built tonight as well. I pray for these that are here, these that are listening. Bless them, encourage them. We trust it to you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Eure Smiths, glad you were here.